What are some challenges that smaller Opportunity Zone project developers face? And are there benefits to investing in a smaller Opportunity Zone fund? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Today's episode will focus on the perspective of a small developer trying to raise Opportunity Zone capital. Joining me today is the developer and promoter of the Sealy Opportunity Fund, Garth Everhart. Garth joins us today from Vancouver, Washington. Garth, welcome to the show. Hey, Jimmy. Thanks for inviting me. appreciate the opportunity to talk about the project and some of the issues we're facing as a smaller developer. Absolutely. Yeah. Happy to get your story here. Garth, uh, you and I have been working together trying to promote your Opportunity Zone fund and Opportunity Zone deal in Fairview, Oregon, just outside of Portland for uh, the past several months. And it's been a little bit of a struggle at times. You've, you've learned a lot of lessons, though, I think, that you can share with a lot of our listeners today, many of whom may be in a boat very similar to yours. So, uh, you know, before we really get rolling, actually, I'd like to kind of back up and, and get a little bit of background on you, Garth and on your Sealy Opportunity Fund. Uh, can you spend a minute just giving us a little bit of, of your background, your experience, and, uh, and what your project is? I uh, started in real estate in 1985 out of graduate school in the Seattle area. I worked in heavy construction management, Seattle's waterfront, did some work for Boeing and, and, and all these different projects. Then I transitioned for a 10-year career as a shopping center developer at, with a group out of Bellevue, Washington. We did primarily focus on neighborhood community shopping centers in Oregon and Washington in smaller communities. These were 200,000 foot shopping centers, you know, grocery store, drugstore kind of format. So I, and I was pretty comfortable in that because it was smaller communities, which kind of mirrored the community I was raised in. So I could speak with the planners and the investors and, and kind of work it all, everything out. Then I moved into uh, high density housing in downtown Portland in the Hawthorne district doing some of the first row house projects as Seattle changed their land use to, or excuse me, as Portland changed its land use code to promote uh, density and infill. And then I ended up uh, spending oh, probably 15 years working on a project called Fairview Village, which is, was the first privately developed new urbanism project on the West Coast. The 91-acre project we built out, City Hall, Post Office, Library, Target, uh, 20 or 30 mixed-use row houses, uh, three apartment buildings, and a couple hundred homes or 150 homes. So it's kind of a walking um, environment. Uh, the, the focus was on reducing vehicle traffic. And then I did a stint in uh, Maui, five or six years in Maui, doing a uh, oh, an estate farm project with a focus on uh, promoting local agriculture on the north shore of Maui. And then I, you know, I've always kept a home in the Fairview, Portland area and came back and uh, been working on various mixed use projects in the area and uh, find myself uh, ready to go with the Sealy project. It's a four story mixed use building, 33 apartments, a little ground floor office at the main intersection in this 91 acre project, Fairview Village. So, you know, it's had a a wide smattering of uh, experience in real estate as a developer, as a promoter, as a contractor, and uh, is uh, a, new, a new venture in terms of 
Um, opportunity funds are opportunity funds are interesting, intriguing. I like the concept. Uh, the, the product is the same kind of product that we've developed before, but it just has a some different wrinkles to it, and uh, it's been interesting and challenging. Uh, not just because of COVID, but just because of some of the uh, IRS and all those issues that come up that generally small developers who rely on investors don't really uh, deal with dealing at that level. Right. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you more about your Sealy Opportunity Fund project and the uh, the deal you have out in Fairview uh, a little bit later toward the end of the show. But let's let's dive into some of the the issues that you faced as as a smaller developer. So, you know, some some questions that have come up with you from potential investors from conversations that you and I have had in the past, Garth. You know, you you tell me that many investors are worried about smaller developers' ability to stay compliant, so that the investors themselves don't end up losing their opportunity zone tax benefits if the deal gets blown. So how do your investors know and how do small developers, investors in general, know that a project like yours will be funded and remain compliant with the opportunity zone regulations? The way I handled it, it took me a while to recognize that OZ investors are a different kind of investor than I'm used to. I'm very much used to working with smaller investors that are, you know, it is a part of normal investing cycle to invest directly in real estate in new build projects. So that's kind of the world that I've lived in and operated in the last 10 or 15 years. The OZ investors kind of a different um, kind of approach because a lot of those people are investing capital gains that they earn through the stock market. So they may have invested in a company or a series of companies they didn't really invest necessarily in the final product, like a piece of real estate, but they invested in the company and the company did well. And now they have some capital gain, but they seem to kind of look at it like, uh, you know, I've been asked to, you know, prepare prospectuses with returns on the last, you know, five or six real estate deals that I've done. That's hard for a small developer to do. Um, if you're a large developer, you know, with, you know, 40 or 50 employees and, you know, you've done, you you know, managed, you know, you know, 50 or 100 projects. You have a lot of records uh, that you can put together and create like fun prospectuses. But for the small developers that I know, many of us have private clients that would be loath to see actual returns uh, used in promotions for uh, other projects that they're not involved in. So it's kind of you know, and I can get it. It took me a lot to kind of understand because I just never dealt with not uh, with investors who are not already in what I call the new build real estate development arena. So they're they're um, they're they're obviously savvy investors, and uh, but it's almost like uh, I'm speaking New England uh, English and they're speaking Louisiana English or something like that. There's just a little di- just a little difference in terms and and what they're expecting. So I've had a hard time, you know, confronting that. So the way I addressed it was, is uh, to over-raise. We're raising three and a half million dollars for a project that has about, uh, I think an $8.4 million cost. We're leaving roughly a million dollars for equity as a developer to provide encouragement to the investors. But uh, that that, that gets us to a loan-to-cost ratio of about, 60%, 60%, which is very feasible, even in today's construction lending market. Um, we're leaving equity in the deal, which helps a lender when they look at you know the developer. 
and we have you know debt coverage ratio of you know 1.8. I mean, normally you'd see you could probably borrow loan to cost of somewhere around 75% with a debt as long as you had a debt coverage ratio of at least you know 1.3, you'd be fine. So by raising more equity, it does drive down the returns a little bit. But what it does do allow you to walk in to various construction lenders and they see that you're uh, liquid, you have more um, equity than perhaps is needed, which makes a, a lender happy. And so uh, with equity and a happy lender, you can get to uh, get underway in construction. And, and, and you know, once you start construction, there are you know, risks, but there, those risks pale in comparison uh, to a lot of risks it takes you that you have to overcome to get to that point. Right. Yeah. So and that is that brings me to my my second question or a follow up question on on that first point. You know, what has been the status of lending uh, lately in the current post COVID economic environment that we find ourselves in? Has it been tougher to get financing these past uh, five or six months here? It's getting better, and the reason I know it is some of the quasi hard lenders, uh, you know, that lend at you know eight or nine percent on construction loans. They're privately they're private funded groups. They've been very, very aggressive. And so during the height of COVID, everybody was drawn back, and clearly the banks drew back. The, the general, most of the banks are pretty busy um, with the PPE money. You know, I don't, I don't know if people know that all the money that came out of the Treasury, the banks that distributed, they got they even a 1% fee. So that's free money to banks to distribute government money. So they were busy with that. And then uh, friends that I know in the business, um, a lot of their banks are focusing on refinancing existing customers. So there has been kind of a shortage of lending for new customers or for new projects. So what's happened is, is the quasi hard money people, the private bank people have become very aggressive in terms of reaching out to projects like mine saying, hey, you know, we think the, econ you know, the economy is going to get better and uh, we're going to turn the corner. And, and so they see an opportunity to get in there and move in that business before the typical uh, bank uh, construction lenders re-enter the business. Right, yeah, that makes sense. It's, that's interesting though, the effects that uh, the post-COVID environment has had on lending uh, due to the PPP. That, that, that's a, that's a, been a big um, time suck for the banks, uh, profitable for them for sure, but uh, has been at the expense of uh, other potential customers, I suppose. It works for everybody involved because a lot of employers had bank relationships, you know, for their, their banking. Mm -hmm. So there was a co conduit between banks and existing business owners. And quite frankly, the government's not in a position to put that money out. And so, it, you know, you have to pay for that service. And I think it made a lot of sense. It just, uh, and the banks weren't lending anyway. They were just, they didn't know what was going to happen. And there was a lot of doom and gloom, uh, foreclosures and evictions. And I saw on the Northwest, they said, well, you know, rents are going to be down by 20%. Well, they weren't. I mean, I have a project with 17 plex. And over the last five months, we've had two people late and we are leasing. It's, it's a block from this site. I mean, we're leasing. Um, we've had two people that are late. We're not charging them late fees. Uh, state has, the governor has put on some eviction moratoriums and things like that. But we're doing fine. And, and my property manager says, you know, that's the experience we're having with a lot of his other clients. It, it didn't turn out to be nearly as bad as the experts thought it was going to be. And I think, you know, banks, you know, their herd mentality. 
you know, and mm. it's not it's not their money, it's the depositors' money, so they're very prudent about it. And uh, but the key thing is, is these private lenders are swooping in because you know nature does not like a vacuum. And right now there's project, you know, the economy is getting better. There's projects ready to go, but the banks quite aren't quite ready because they're busy doing other things. And so these private, that, that's the signal to me that uh, construction lending by banks will probably be returning before the end of the year. Good. Well, that's, that's some good news on all fronts there. So Garth, in, in some ways, the Opportunity Zone incentive is geared to shift primarily stock market investors with little or no real estate investing into real estate because this is a place-based economic policy. Many of the funds are focused on real estate, as, as we've noted on this podcast over and over again. What are some of the challenges with raising capital from non-real estate investors for a real estate project? For myself, or so, and I think uh, probably typical of many small developers, we just cannot put up the paperwork, the 10 or 15 years of operating history, because we're small developers. We develop one or two projects at a time. Uh, they're privately funded. Um, so we don't, I don't release the financial returns on any of my private projects because my investors, uh, you know, they, they don't expect to see me using their, return, you know, their the returns on a project invested publicly. But it's a little different with some of the larger companies, the big developers that have been, been very experienced in the syndication market. Where that's a lot more transparent, and they're used to it, and they have the they have the means and the people to do it. Uh, there's just so many things that a small developer can do today, and and these investors, I mean, let's face it, they many of them may be you know working with a Fidelity or a Vanguard or any number of private brokers that can produce reams of information on every stock that they've ever dreamed of uh, uh, investing in or considering or, or fund. And so that's their expectation of materials when making very important investing decisions. It's just uh, we're producing a product that's going to generate money in the future. A lot of people buy stocks that are going to produce dividends, you know, in the current year and and some appreciation. It's just uh, you know, it's not everybody's not everybody's real estate investor and. Um, so I think it takes a little education uh, by developers so they, so investors understand where the flows come from and, and why there's a delay because there's construction that has to occur to generate these new projects, which is, you know, that's the basic premise of the OZ program is create new projects. And developers have to change. I mean, I've had to, you know, kind of change and really examine the information I'm giving and provide a lot more data about vacancies and things like that so they feel like they can have the assurance because when they buy a stock or a stock fund there is a history that gives them some kind of assurance about what 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 is likely to occur that that doesn't necessarily occur with um, uh, small developers and small developments right yeah it's a it's a whole different world once you move into private investing uh, away from publicly traded securities like the the stock market is uh, earlier this year garth the IRS issued an extension for investors. They essentially did away with the 180-day window for most investors recognizing a capital gain this year, and instead just pushed back uh, most investors' deadlines to December 31, 2020, year-end, uh, end of this year. 
have what has that been like for you? Has that caused any problems on your end, or has that del- potentially delayed uh, any any inbound capital raising efforts on your end? Have you gotten any pushback from investors because of that? I think so. Uh, the only reason I think I could say that is, you know, we've been communicating with investors. Uh, your your website is very good about finding people that are interested in our project, and we're sending them information and additional information. But there's kind of an unwillingness to pull the trigger or to either say yes or no. I mean, I'd rather have no than maybe or a no than, than silence. I mean, if, if somebody says, you know, this is not my cup of tea. Although, you know, I, like I talked to a guy yesterday who said, you know, we're not going to invest in Oregon. We're really focusing on the East Coast. I said, oh, great, great. You know, they had inquired about the site for the project, but they, you know, upon some further reflection or refinement, they had decided to focus on a geographic area. I think that's great. It's like, you know, thank you for your time. You know, that, that's, that, that's the kind of um, response, either yes uh, or no, or yes, we need more information, or maybe if we see some more information, that's great. What I'm getting a lot of right now is just no response. And, uh, and these are people that have inquired about my project. And, um, you know, I could accept no very gracefully, and, you know, I don't want to waste their time or my own. So it, it seems to me, you know, and I've had two people, you know, along the same lines over the last two weeks of been making calls saying, you know, we're just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen in the election. And I, and I did not get personal with them about, like, when did you get your capital gains? But the fact of the matter is, is nobody really has to do anything until the end of the year. I could see a huge amount of equity or uh, 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 commitments towards the end of the year as the economy improves. And, uh, and, and that's probably what we'll see because there is there are transactions occurring. I watched the Novogratic reporting. There are transactions occurring. There seem to be a lot of large funds, which have you know big marketing arms. Um, but on the small groups, it may be that uh, nobody's really sure um, until they have to. When they have to make a decision and they look around, um, then then they'll pull the trigger. Yeah, I've been saying the same thing, Garth. Uh, you know, I think in in some ways it's a double-edged sword, right? It's it's good to give investors more time. It's good to provide more relief in the current economic environment that we're finding ourselves in. But, you know, the other side of that sword is um, it kind of puts uh, people who are raising capital behind the eight ball a little bit. Uh, you know, now you're kind of the the urgency for investors to write checks is gone or if not gone, it's at least pushed back until the end of the year. So I, I, I agree with you, Garth. I do think that we should, in theory, see a surge of investment activity uh, in the fourth quarter this year, uh, in particular the last uh, couple of months, possibly. Um, wanted to shift to some more issues that are unique to small developers now, Garth. Um, the Opportunity Zone format itself, uh, do you feel that it plays more to the strengths of larger developers, and, and why might you think that? I, I believe, well, I think a small developer in the right market, if you're a small developer in Seattle, you know, or in, in, in an OZ zone in Seattle, or Bellevue, and I'm always spot, talking about the Northwest because that's, that's where my expertise lies. You know, location is still really, really important in real estate. And, uh, and I, I don't think you'll ever get beyond that. The OZ kind of pushes that by giving the tax benefits to maybe less prosperous um, zip codes. But, you know, if you're a smaller developer with a niche property in a major metropolitan area, you're probably fine. Um, 
but if you're a smaller developer in an outlying area, let's face it, there's just, there's a, outlying areas don't get as much as an investment, period. Whether it's OZ investors or regular real estate investors as, you know, suburban areas do. And, and the point of the OZ, or what I, what I believe is one of the points, was to incentivize uh, development in these small areas. The, the problem becomes, or that I see is, is I'm not sure how many uh, larger developers, or uh, let me put it another way. There's a lot of communities that cannot really make a case for a large OZ investment. You go, like Fairview is a town of 10,000. It happens to be the Portland metro area and it's surrounded by other towns, so it's part of the big, bigger picture. But if you go, uh, you know, further up the gorge, like to the Dalles or to Hood River, I don't know if they have OZ zones. But, you know, even if they, if they have an OZ zone, the people might go, well, if I have a choice to invest in a, in a metro area or in one of these communities that needs the investment, um, there's still a safety issue, you know, a perceived safety issue, even though they're really, they're investing for returns and capital gain benefits. So I think what happens is, um, it's hard, it would be very hard, I think, for a larger fund to go into a truly small community where the smaller developers can can exist because they have the local contacts and they may have, you know, they may already own the property or already have some local investors. I mean, in smaller towns, most investment is done by local investors. So I, I always wonder about this, this, this process is, you know, um, Met, major metropolitan areas are more favorable to the bank, and you, you do need banks. And um, OZ funds that are in the metropolitan areas that kind of work around the outskirts, they'll do fine. I just, I always wonder how OZ funds will work in this, the you know, 10,000 person communities, you know, outside of the me major metropolitan areas, or I call it the I-5 corridor out here. You know, are they going to be getting into, you know, eastern Washington, eastern Oregon? Um, how easy is that for these large funds to do? Because they, they have a carrying cost. I mean, large funds have to generate a certain amount of revenue just to pay for themselves. And so they, they have a, you know, they have, a, they have an edge in marketing. They have an edge in some of the reporting they can do. Uh, they have very attractive uh, materials that uh, hard for a smaller developer to duplicate. Um, so it's just, I, I just kind of wonder, you know, how this is going to shake out in terms of how much money will truly get into, say, communities under 20,000 people. It would be very fascinating to look at OZ money going into communities below a certain size versus above that size. And, um, but I'm, I'm sure at some point in time there'll be some tracking on that to tell us how, how that works. Because there, there doesn't appear to be any incentive for banks to do funding with OZ money in the smaller communities, and that would be that would be one way you could trigger perhaps more. That is, if banks had to do more community lending around OZ in certain communities, that might be one way to overcome that. And again, I'm not. It's just, that's just my sense of it in terms of looking at some of the OZ funds out there and whether or not they've been able to raise money for some of these smaller projects. Yeah, it's an interesting idea, um, and it's a it's a concept that that's come up a couple times on this podcast in in the past. Is uh, you know how a lot of the money may end up flowing to primary markets where banks are more comfortable lending, where investors are more comfortable investing. Uh, it will be interesting to see some data on reporting on 
where the money is flowing. And I, I do expect that we're going to see at least some level of geographic reporting from the Treasury Department as early as next summer uh, for, I believe that would be uh, 2018 tax year data. Uh, their, their data, unfortunately, lags behind a few years, but uh, I think the first wave of that data will start coming out um, in about a year, a little bit less than a year, and then we'll have, have a chance to take a good look there. So, Garth, speaking of you know, some burdens on smaller developers and, and reporting requirements. You know, there's been some uh, some thoughts on Capitol Hill about legislating additional reporting requirements. And, you know, I think it would be great to get some additional reporting. It's a largely uh, bipartisan effort to try to put some more reporting requirements around this um, new type of investment, these opportunities on investments. But would doing so put a bigger burden on smaller developers such as yourself? Well, it's, um, I think it, the reporting is important. If, it's, if, if the premise of this is a social contract where we're gonna give these tax benefits in exchange for um, developing in areas that really need development and are not normally attractive to development, uh, the issue is it's just the cost of it. There's an, an awful lot of costs in the OZ. I was kind of surprised all the costs that I faced uh, getting OZ fund up and then the compliance costs, how that just eats away at the return. And so there's a situation is that every time government imposes another regulation, if it's adding more reporting, somebody has to generate that report. And then somebody has to be prepared to uh, stand behind that report and defend that report if there's any questions that occur. And you certainly don't want to put the investors at risk in terms of, of the tax benefits they're seeking by this investment. So, you know, it, it, I, I'd like to, you know, if they did it, I really hope they consider the impact on additional work on small development. Because, you know, ours is a three and a half million dollar raise. You know, you start looking at some of the fees on three and a half million dollars. It, 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 the, the fees, they're not based on the size. They're just based, it's a basic fee to do work. Whether you're reporting on a $10 million OZ or a three and a half million dollar OZ, there's always a fixed cost and a variable cost. And, you know, every time you raise the fixed cost, it just makes it less attractive for the smaller, uh, the smaller fund because it's, you know, carrying a heavier burden. I would be intrigued if there were two levels of reporting. In a certain sense, it doesn't make sense to require a three or four or $5 million OZ fund to necessarily do the same amount of reporting as a 20 or $30 million fund for two reasons. One, the smaller funds may be in smaller communities, which is really one of the primary focuses on this. So it's already hard enough to get investors into smaller communities. Investing in a downtown Portland or downtown Seattle is obviously more attractive to investors. But if you're trying to incentivize investment in smaller towns, say towns under 10,000, not as many investors are intrigued. So the way you cover that is you offer higher returns. But every time you increase reporting requirements, that's a cost that's going to be borne by the investors. And so every additional cost you obligate a fund to uh, meet, you start reducing the attractiveness of the funds. And, um, and let's face it, some of these communities are not as uh, necessarily as attracted to invest in others. So if you, you know, through additional 
reporting requirements re, you know make them less attractive who are you helping so it, to me if you could do it by you know specific zip code because some of these opportunity funds are, are were mapped in areas that i think were surprising to pretty much everybody um in terms of you know the downtown portland actually did not need oz mapping let's be frank um and i've heard some other similar stories around the country and I think that's what raised a lot of fear with the OZ funds when they saw some of the places in development investor groups and some of the funding that occurred, it was um, kind of like piling on in terms of you know, whatever. So if you, had, if you had one tier for smaller funds or smaller communities and another tier for larger funds or more dominant uh, economies, I mean, the, the whole point of this was to get people to invest in areas that don't are not as attractive and get have been in a sense left behind. So it's just I I would be intrigued if they would look at report requirements uh, based on size of fund and uh, or you know exactly where the fund is operating. Yes, yes, some interesting ideas there. Um, that might open up a whole nother can of worms. Uh, but I, I guess I I think my hope is that they they add enough reporting requirements so that they're useful to draw conclusions from the program but not not be so burdensome that they would they would cause uh the fund's costs to rise too unnecessarily as and especially uh those those smaller funds that can ill afford to have any more costs uh, associated with with them that i i think they think if they can find that sweet spot that would be great and if they could, you know, the other thing about that, Jimmy, is if they could find that sweet spot and stay there and not come back two years later and go, well, let's add this next burden on top of it. Right. You know I mean, and, and yeah. really identify what support. That'd be great because that would take out you know, any uncertainty. Yep. No, I, I, I agree with you 100%, Garth. I agree. So, Garth, yeah, there are obviously a lot of benefits to being invested in a larger fund investing primarily in primary markets where investors are comfortable and lenders are more comfortable. What are some of the benefits to investing in a smaller project with a smaller developer outside of a primary market in a fund such as uh, the Sealy fund that, that you operate? What are some of the benefits that, that investors may have from investing with uh, a, a smaller fund like yourself? A smaller, I think it's attractive for a number of reasons. The primary is is that the smaller developer is engaged in the community. These are smaller communities. Uh, smaller developers are on the street. Uh, they they are typically invested in the project with the investors, and that's a a major investment for the developer. I mean, my investment in this project is is very important to me. And, and, and it's very important to me, not just getting it underway and getting it completed, but it's important to me all the way through. Um, and, I, and I'm not downplaying that sentiment that large investors would be, but if you're managing you know, 10 projects, you may not be able to give the day-to-day -day scrutiny that a developer has that's very intimate with each project he does or the project he's doing, the one project he's doing in an OZ fund. And you know, OZ, you know, the smaller developers. I mean, face it, we work in smaller communities. I mean, it, it would be very large for a, a very difficult or very odd for large developers to come into a small community because they need to do projects of certain scale. I mean, the larger developers, uh, you know, they start small. They'll do you know, 30 units, 40 units, 50 unit kind of projects. 
but at some point in time they graduate to the institutional grade, the 100 unit projects. And you know, you might be able to do a 100 unit project in a town like Corvallis or a town like Longview or those, you know, in the Northwest. Uh, but those communities can't support a lot of those. But they can support they can support a lot more of the small developments that respond to market year by year, as opposed to somebody coming in doing a big project and then nothing happening for the next five or six years because uh, there's just no there's no room left. Uh, so it's kind of um, you know that you know that's you know I'm uh, obviously biased towards small developer. We've been a niche developer everywhere we go, and uh, we're just we're very nimble and very focused on every project we do. I, in this case, I'm actually building the project myself in, the, in addition to being a developer. So I'm very much uh, motivated uh, by how successful the project is. No, oh, that, yeah, that makes sense. Garth, a uh, more intimate connection with the fund manager and the developer when you go into some of these smaller projects uh, with, a, with a fund such as your as yourself as the as the Sealy Fund or or another smaller type developer like you and and as you mentioned it's probably one of the better ways to access some of these smaller more overlooked communities if if that's your goal as an investor as well I I don't disagree I've seen a lot of this um, a lot of podcast information you know and a lot of stuff about social investing as being you know people are really paying much more attention to that I was like well. I drive through a lot of small communities in Oregon and Washington, and uh, they have been overlooked in the last 10 years. And, uh, you know, if you want this thing to work or really do it, then you invest in small communities. And, uh, uh, again, nothing against large developers. I think they do great work. They, they are obviously successful. Uh, but, you know, can they, can they go – are they in a small community already where they can bring the right product at the right time? And I just, I just – I'm not sure if that's true. Because there's, you know, they're they're good at one thing, and I think small developers may be good at other things. But if you really kind of want to focus on putting some money into a deal and getting your tax benefits and uh, getting some good returns, uh, the the small communities are hungry are hungry for this kind of investment. And in the cities, quite frankly, are very very friendly to this, which is a major issue. Yep, some very interesting points to consider for investors there, Garth. I don't disagree at all. Uh, Garth, we're in an election year, and actually we're just a little more than two months away from the presidential election now. Uh, what do you think will happen with the Opportunity Zone marketplace after the election and in the run-up to that year-end deadline that we were discussing earlier? I think the year-end deadline will require people to act. I mean, the bottom line is they won't have, unless the government somehow decides to extend it again, they will have to act. So if there are people sitting on the fence because of COVID, because of the economy, or because of the election, um, once the election is over and as we get closer and closer to that December 31st deadline, people will, will not be able to sit on the fence much longer. So I, I expect to see quite a bit of activity. Yeah, I, I do too, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, we will have more clarity one way or another, uh, depending on well, I guess regardless of who wins the presidency and the Senate and the House, uh, at least we'll know. We'll have the market will have some clarity there. And as you mentioned, um, obviously, yeah, we'll be closer to the year-end deadline. I think uh, there will be a huge incentive for investors to 
move their capital before the end of the year due to that year-end deadline. Uh, Garth, any other issues unique to small developers or particularly burdensome for small developers with respect to the Opportunity Zone incentive that we haven't covered yet? Anything else you want to convey to our listeners today? Uh, one of the things that we found difficult was, you know, once we started down the path of the fund, we were uh, contacted by lots of consultant groups. And it was really interesting to me because I have yet to meet a consultant group that just provides a clear map in terms of these are the basic 10 things to be done. Our company does items one through five. So it, was, it, took, a, it took me a, 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 a fair amount of time also, in all fairness, is there was also a lot of uncertainty about this program until December of 2019 because the rules were changing. I think there were two different sets of rules that came out or amendments that came out. I mean, one in 2018 and early 2019 and then one at the end of 2019. And it was all based on feedback. It's all good. But I mean, there were a lot of people promoting, uh, helping you set these funds up and, and what you were going to do, but that kind of kept shifting because it wasn't until the end of 2019 that I think that people actually really knew. And so there were law firms, accounting firms, uh, asset firms, you know, all these different groups out there pitching uh, you know, a fee-based service to do ABC, but there was really no roadmap of, you know, these are the 10 things you need to actually have a fund uh, that's, that's up and running and the compliance and all those things. It was just mainly about uh, getting into the business, uh, creating a, a, a business opportunity, without the client necessarily knowing what other pieces it needed to go get from other people. So that was, that was difficult for me, and that just made me me. But it's, there's a lot of conflicting information out there. You kind of have to weed through and do a lot of interviewing to kind of put together the pieces on paper in your own mind so you understood what you needed to do, you know, what additional things you needed to pay for to get the project where it, it meets what the industry expects it to meet in terms of an offering. So that, that, was, uh, that, was, that was unique. Yeah, definitely. I mean, being an early adopter or, or a trailblazer such as yourself, Garth, that incurs some, uh, some higher costs than some people who may follow behind you. Uh, the roadmap and best practices for doing all this still being ironed out by, by the industry. We've, we've, we've come a long way, I think, in the past couple of years and certainly in the in the past several months since the final regulations uh have been issued but uh yeah some some of us still trying to figure out a lot of the best practices um and and still a lot on the table for for um for different consultants and accounting firms and law firms to to sort out uh Garth I want to get back to your deal and the Sealy opportunity fund here in the last few minutes before we go today. Can can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what your project in Fairview and and what you have going on there? Maybe you can give us a sense of uh, of of how big it is, what type of project it is, and and some of the demographics of the area. Um, yes, the Sealy is a uh, it's located at the main intersection of Sealy Apartments. Uh, the business entity is the Sealy Apartment LLC. That's what the fund will invest in. It's a four-story mixed-use building at the main intersection of Fairview Village, which is the 91-acre uh, village project. We, we primarily finished that project in 2008-2009, but we, I, we kept some pieces back because in the case of this particular piece, I owned it. And the five acres across the intersection was owned by Providence Hospital. They have not made their plans known 
but I kept it back when we finished the rest of the village, you know, with expectation to develop it when the hospital did something. But then the, the opportunity zone came along and made it uh, attractive to do it now. Um, four story mixed use, three, uh, three levels of apartments above ground floor office. It's planned for four, four office spaces of varying sizes. Uh, there's a strong history of office development or need in that area. I've built most of the, I think there's 29 row houses surrounding this location around this block. And out of those, I think 16 or 18 of those were converted or built directly as mixed use. A lot of them were converted because there was a demand for office space. And that's a market where these are small business operators who have actually had to buy buildings instead of being able to rent. I own one building, uh, Marketplace Apartments, one block away. It has two office spaces, and they've been renting from day one. So. You know, it's uh, the office space I'm very keen on because this is this is not a retail location. This is an office location, and we have uh, the library and the city hall across the street, one direction. We have a beautiful new VA clinic uh, and a po and the post office across another street. Targets down the uh, about 100 feet, 100 yards, 200 yards away down one street. There's a credit, and so it's kind of a little business core. So I'm, I'm encouraged about that. In apartments, I mean, we have a we've been under five percent vacancy for a long time in East County because a lot of people were investing in downtown Portland. Um, we are not located in Portland; we are in our own jurisdiction, so um, we don't have some of the uh, zoning constraints that the city of Portland has placed on apartment um, developers, which has uh, severely uh, impacted development in the last year or two. But uh, you know, East County has got a lot of national employers around there. It's a strong blue-collar, white-collar area. Uh, Amazon just opened up a facility with 2,000 jobs. FedEx has a huge facility nearby. We have two chip companies that, uh, you know, face Fairview Village. Uh, so we have a lot of good national employers and a lot of good regional employers, and uh, the Port of Portland is very strong. Um, they've overseen a lot of development between Portland Airport, which is uh, along Columbia River, just west of us, out to along the Columbia Eastward to the gorge, and, and that has brought a lot. I mean, literally from our site, you've got a 10-minute drive probably to at least 100 employers. So it's a, it's a very nice place, um, and I think that's why we have low vacancies, is a lot of people have been displaced out of Portland because the rents are much higher in Portland, and uh, we're able to offer a more suburban kind of format with, uh, but you don't have to drive to Portland to get a job or to work. So that's uh, that's the long and short of the village. It's a beautiful facility. Uh, the website's www.fairvillage.com. Um, people, you know, I lived in the village for 12 years. I've been fortunate to be part of the development team from day one and built a lot of what got built. I've been fortunate enough to be around it long enough to see second generation people living there, which is kind of cool. And um, it's a nice place to live. com, Fantastic. Uh, Garth, thanks for joining us today. Is there anywhere else our listeners can go to learn more about you and the Sealy Opportunity Fund before we go? Uh, your website is great. We have a listing there. Um, we get, we've been getting traffic off of it. And uh, that's, the, that's where we update our information. Uh, once people uh, inquire about a project, then we contact them directly and send them more detailed information as they, as they seek. 
Uh, but that's uh, that's a good clearinghouse. Fantastic. Uh, thank you for that, Garth. I'll be sure to link to uh, that in the show notes for today's episode. For our listeners out there, you can find the show notes for today's episode on the Opportunity Zones database website at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links to all of the resources that Garth and I discussed on today's show. Garth, thanks a lot for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time, Jim. Thank you. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit opportunitydb.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.